good morning. <clears throat> My name is John. Very grateful that you're here with us uh, this morning, and um, I have the joy and privilege of being one of the pastors here, and uh, thanks for joining us. If I haven't had the chance to, to meet you or I don't know you very well, would love to uh, say hi afterwards and maybe grab a coffee and, and hear uh, a little bit of your story and how you ended up here. We uh, started this year, or at the beginning of the year, leading up to Easter, we always look at one of the Gospels, which is one of the stories about the life of Jesus uh, that's recorded for us in the Bible. And this year, we were looking at the Gospel of Luke, and we started with this theme of, of Jubilee, where we were looking at uh, Luke through the lens that he introduces us, that Jesus takes this passage from Isaiah, and in his first public ministry, the thing that he does is he says, I'm here to preach good news to the poor to heal those who need it, and to bring uh, reconciliation and hope and restoration to people. It's the year of jubilee, he uses this word, jubilee. And so we followed Jesus around and watched how he brought jubilee into the world through his person and through his, his actions, and we start to learn how to dream a dream of jubilee, that this might be possible in our world and in our lives. And then we now are moving into the book of Acts, which is a, a, a second chapter, I guess you could say, of, of Luke. It's the same author, and he writes about what happens after Jesus leaves. And we hear this beautiful passage in Acts 2, that is a people who look like Jubilee. So I want to read it for us this morning. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe, and many wonders and signs were being performed through the apostles. Now all the believers were together and held all things in common. They sold their possessions and property and distributed the proceeds to all as any had need. Every day they devoted themselves to meeting together in the temple and broke bread from house to house. They ate their food with joyful and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all people. Every day the Lord added to their number those who were being saved. So what we see in this picture is a beautiful uh, vignette of what it means, actually, when Jubilee takes residence in a group of people. These people are a people called Jubilee. And so the question is, what happened? What happened that Jubilee was uh, just a dream? What happened that it actually could become part of the life of a group of people? And the first few chapters of Acts tell us that it's because God's promised spirit actually comes and takes residence within this group of people. So God is no longer present in Jesus. Jesus says, I'm going to give you the spirit and I'm going to leave. So Jesus leaves. But he's present with us in his spirit. And we talked about that in the first part of the series a few weeks ago, that one of the things the spirit does, or one of the ways that we experience what God's spirit does, is, is these moments of resonance. The moments where the world feels fully colored. It moves from being gray to colored, where we move from feeling kind of like dead to feeling alive. And we're invited into a much bigger story about who we are and the world. We often live in these tiny little stories. One of my uh, favorite authors, David Foster Wallace, says we live in skull-sized kingdoms, skull-sized stories. And what happens when we experience moments of resonance is that the story of the world opens up to us and we feel called into it. And in fact, that's what Peter says. So the Holy Spirit comes on this group of people and then they think, uh, the people that are watching this group of people think that, that they're drunk. It gets pretty weird. And so they're like, I don't know what's going on. It, maybe these people are drunk, which is a, a small story. And Peter stands up and he explains to the people what's happening. And so he gives this sermon. And I've put uh, the text of the sermon up here. And now the point is not to test the strength of your vision or these screens that we have up here. But the point is just to show you with the, with the color of it that all of these red parts that are in Peter's sermon, are actually just straight-up quotes from the, the Old Testament, from the Hebrew Scriptures. It's, it's over half of it. 
And so when Peter is trying to make sense of what's going on, is he's saying that the Spirit has come. The Spirit is now residing in us, and we are drawn into this much bigger story. We're not just drunk. We didn't just have too much to drink. That's a small story. But there's this huge, big story of the entire world and of the people of God, which has been going on for a very long time that now we are brought into. There's this new chapter as the Holy Spirit comes and takes residence in us. It's a deep moment of, of, of resonance, actually, is what he's describing. The Spirit has entered. We feel called into this new story, into this new picture, and we're transformed as God's people. So last week, Mitch summarized a few postures that we can learn from this Acts 2 church. How can we um, make space and experience God's presence with us? And, and there was four things that he talked about. The first is just that we show up. The posture that we have as we come here, we show up. We prepare even for our time together as we meet with God's people and as we come to listen to God's word and to sing together. That we, we show up, we free ourselves, as Mian was saying, from distraction where we can. The second thing that we do when we come together is we try to discern what God is up to. What is the Spirit up to in this time and in this place? What is he up to in the lives of one another? What is he up to in our city? And then finally, we submit to God. We say yes to God. We join him in what he's doing as he puts his hand out to us, and then we love one another. These are the four postures that the early church has and we're invited to have as God's people. So last week, Mitch got very, very practical in uh, uh, inviting us into those postures. And today, we want to continue to be practical. This is a practical part of of the series uh, that we're getting into. So if last week was about postures, about these four postures that we need to have, Today is going to be more about practices. What can we learn from this Acts church that we can practice to experience God's presence here with us today? How can we make space for resonance? And again, once again, resonance is not something we can control. By nature, it's an elusive thing. We can't promise that God will show up in powerful ways every Sunday, but we can make space for it. We can practice it. So in this uh, passage we read in Acts 2, it mentions several practices of the early church that we can take a look at. The first is, is fellowship. And that's a really important part of who we are here on, on a Sunday, is that we spend time passing the peace because we want to be a community church. We want to be a place where you're not just known by God, but we're actually known by each other. That we know each other's stories, that we learn each other's stories, that we're able to minister into and pray into those stories. The second thing is teaching. We see the apostles teaching that the, uh, that the early church was doing. And then, so we, on Sundays when we gather, we do preaching. We do times like this where we're teaching and we're walking through God's word together. The third thing that we see is prayer. I love uh, that this is a part of of, uh, the early church, and Mitch uh, did a great job of inviting us to pray together, to come forward for prayer. And we'll have that happening again today, and we're going to continue doing that, that people are here and available to pray with you. And for me, I'll just say, one of the, the places, one of the spaces or practices that I actually experience God's presence the most keenly in my life is actually times of prayer prayer with other followers of Jesus when we're coming before him. And I can't really describe it in words, but I can sense the presence of God with me and with us in those times and in those places. The fourth thing that we see in this passage is a deep economic care for those in the community. If you notice, it said they sold things so that nobody was in need. And now we generally don't think about this as part of the gathering or maybe part of the people of God, or we think about it kind of in a conceptual way and not in a practiced way. But that's because we are not people who are shaped by this jubilee dream. It was part of the jubilee dream that there is good news for the poor, that there are people who are not in need amongst us. 
And then finally, there's praising God, which we come together. We just spend some time worshiping God in song, and we'll do that again towards the end. So all of these things are, are listed in that passage, and all of them are very, very important. Um, but as I was studying this passage in the last few weeks... There was something that was very surprising to me, something that stood out quite a bit. In this amazing list, with all of these practices, there's only actually one thing that's mentioned three different times. And it's, the thing that was surprising is it's not the thing that I would think about. If I was making a list of like what's important for the church or what was important to the early church. And here's what it says in the passage. Verse 42. They devoted themselves to the breaking of bread. They, every day they broke bread and they ate their food with joyful and sincere hearts. Now, I don't know about you, but for me, this is actually very fascinating and surprising because the thing that's mentioned actually most often in that amazing passage, which is very famous and many of us know it, is table fellowship, eating together. This is the number one practice that's mentioned there. Andrew McGowan, in his great book on ancient Christian worship, where he studies passages like this and just what the early church did, he says this, We lack the details of these elements, but one thing in particular is surprising. Relative to more recent patterns of worship, Christians met for meals. A distinctive meal tradition here called the breaking of the bread was not a social event additional to worship or a programmatic attempt to create fellowship among the Christians but the regular form of Christian worship. So it's surprising to us, but it was a key characteristic of the early church. And as I thought about it, it actually, it's surprising to me, but it shouldn't be if I even zoom out farther and just look at the story of the Bible, because the Bible is littered with table imagery. When angels appear to Abram and, and uh, uh, Sarah, that he, he comes, uh, the, these angels come, and what does Abram do to welcome them in? He creates a meal for them. When Elijah is depressed and he's running away, what does God do? He provides a meal and sends him for a nap. Some of you are like, amen, I could deal with that right now. Almost all of Israel's biggest religious celebrations actually focus around feasts. Psalm 23, which is a a very meaningful passage to me in the last few years, but many of us have memorized that passage. God in that passage is described as a shepherd, and what is one of the key things that he does? He provides a table for us, a meal, in the midst of our enemies, in this time that we would feel the swirl and the the fear that we would have of being around our enemies. God provides a table. He provides meal. He provides rest. And large swaths of Jesus' ministry is is also done around the table. Robert Karras, in one of my favorite named books, which is called Eating Your Way Through Luke's Gospel, Uh, That's just great. This is what he says. In Luke's gospel, Jesus is either going to a meal, at a meal, or coming from a meal. Which probably sounds a lot to you. It sounds like, to me, my family vacations. Or when I go home to my parents, after breakfast, we're sitting at the table. They'll be like, what should we do for lunch? And at lunch, it's like, maybe we should have coffee. And then at coffee, it's like, oh, I forgot to make supper. Um, So this is like, but this is how Jesus does ministry. He's always moving. He's always moving towards the next meal. And if we we go back over our study in Luke, you might remember that one of the first things we looked at is Jesus ministering to this woman who's called sinful at the Pharisee's house, at the table. And he says, you actually didn't host me, and she comes, even though she's outcast. She's the host. She's the one who shows us what it means to love God and love neighbor. It's deeply scandalous because it happens at the table, this important space. When he goes to Levi, the tax collector, he says to him, I want to come to your house and eat with you, which again scandalizes everybody, but Jesus is extending jubilee to Levi, the tax collector, who is economically very, very rich, but socially very poor. And Jesus says, I want to come to your house and eat with you. 
And at the end of his ministry, Jesus uses a meal, the Passover meal, which links him to that old story again, to the story of the Hebrew scriptures. And he forecasts through that meal what he will do. And he gives the disciples and us a practice that we might do that every time we come to the table together, where we relive the biblical story and we come and center ourselves and the story around Jesus together. When Jesus reveals himself to the disciples on the Emmaus Road after he has been resurrected, the way that he shows them who he is, or it says he was made known to them in the breaking of the bread. It's exactly the same language. So the table and the meal are key to Jesus' ministry strategy, but they're also key to Jesus' self-identification, how the Gospels represent him to us. The Gospels are trying to give us an answer to this question, among many others, but one of them is, is why did Jesus come? And so in the language of the Bible, it says, the Son of Man came to dot, dot, dot. And there's only three answers to that question in the Gospels. The Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. The Son of, the man, son of man sorry, came to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. And the third one is, he came eating and drinking. These are the ways that the Bible identifies what Jesus, who Jesus is and why he came. So for me, if we step back, it's actually fairly obvious to see that the table and meals were very, very key to Jesus, who he understood himself to be, to the story of the Bible, and to how Jesus did ministry. So why is it so surprising for us, at least for me, and Andrew McGowan says the same thing for us as, as followers of Jesus today, why is it so surprising? Well, let me just give you two thoughts about why this is a surprising feature of the early church and of the Bible story. The first is that we have a deeply disembodied idea, I think, of who Jesus is and what it means to follow him. By this, I just mean that for many of us, when we think of, uh, about God, we think about him through the lens of belief and faith. Basically, in our minds. We house him in our minds, our cognitive faculties. And the most important thing we think about ourselves is what we believe about God what we understand to be true about him. And and it's really important for us that we believe the right things. Now, I think that's true, and and definitely I don't want us to be believing the wrong things. That's not the point of what I'm saying here. And that's what we're doing now, and what we do every Sunday when we gather around God's word, and it's what that early church did as well. But when we have too much of an emphasis in that direction, it can lead to a God who only exists in the realms of our mind. Uh, Amazing philosopher Charles Taylor, Canadian philosopher Charles Taylor, he wrote this amazing book, A Secular Age, and he calls this way of thinking about God excarnation. If incarnation is that God comes and becomes a human in Jesus, excarnation is this idea, the steady disembodying of spiritual life so that it's less and less carried in deeply meaningful body forms, bodily forms, sorry, and lies more and more in our heads. Excarnation. Or said in a less wordy way by no less of a philosopher, James K.A. Smith, he says, you are what you think is a motto that reduces human beings to brains on a stick. That's what you can think. We think of ourselves and we think of Christian formation and what we think of God as if we're brains on a stick. The most important thing is to get the right information in our head. But this actually runs against what we see in God's story. When he wants to be known most directly, what does God do? He comes as a person. Not excarnation, not thoughts, not ideas, but a person. He comes and incarnates himself. And the table that we have and the table that he invites us to is an extension of that same idea of incarnation. This is not a thought. This is not a belief. This is a place. 
And this is a practice. And it's imbued with the story and meaning given by Jesus. But it's a place where we can actually come and meet God and meet one another. It's a space of resonance, which at its heart is a relational reality and not just something that we believe or think. So that's the first reason, is we have a deeply disembodied idea of Jesus and what it means to follow him. But the second reason, I think that we are surprised by this, is that the vision that we have of God and what he came to do is shaped mostly by a guilt and innocence paradigm. You can go to the next slide, Caleb. It's shaped by a guilt and innocence paradigm. And what I mean by this is that for most of us, the primary way that we understand or look at God is as a judge. That God is like this judge... And we are sitting in the docket, and we, unfortunately, have either done something a little bit wrong or very, very wrong. But the, the outcome is going to be the same. We're going to H-E double hockey sticks is where we're headed after this. And so we feel this guilt or innocence in front of this uh, judge, but guilt, because we've all done something wrong. But at the last moment, Jesus sweeps in, and he takes our punishment, good news, And now we are free to go. Now, the storyline has merit in the Bible. I'm not saying it's it's incorrect. God is indeed presented as an angry judge at certain points within the story. But if this becomes the singular picture we have of God, it distorts who he is. I would say it like this. Imagine that the picture that the Bible paints of God is like having speakers all around this room. So we've only got these two. But imagine there are speakers all over the place. When we only think of God as an angry judge, it's like taking one speaker and just cranking it all the way up and muting all the rest of them, which doesn't allow the music to play. It gives us a distorted idea of who God is. What the Bible actually wants to do is is different. It has many different speakers that's trying to give us this fully orbed perspective on who God is and let the music play. And so if we only turn up that one speaker that God is this angry judge, then he'll always be someone who's very distant to us. Like, I don't know if that's somebody I want to go for lunch with, you know, a judge who's just extremely angry with me. And the options that I have in front of this judge also aren't very good. I'm either guilty or I'm free, which is much better than being guilty. But you don't want to stay and just hang out in the courtroom with the judge, right? Afterwards, you go, you leave, you get out of the presence of the judge because you've been declared free. So it's not a relational reality. It's more like back to business as usual. But the focus on the table is about turning up one of those other speakers to allow us to see a full picture of who God is. Because at the table, we're invited to see God as a great host, as someone who can't wait to come and eat with us, who's been preparing a table and a meal for us. Now, I don't know much about this. Just to be honest, I'm not a very good host. So if you come to my house, just that's the expectations that you should have. I don't know what I'm doing. But there are many, actually, I've, I've had the joy and privilege of being uh, with good hosts. So I'd say Gareth and Tiff, great hosts. Andrew and Maddie are fantastic hosts. I was at their house for dinner uh, this week, and it was a great experience. My brother-in-law is a really, really good host. And here's the things that I've learned from good hosts because I don't know how to do them myself. You show up to their house, and they've thought through things. They're not just there in their home clothes, like I would be like cleaning the toilet or something like that. They have thought through things. They'll greet you at the door with a smile. Unbelievable. And it's like they want you to come in. It's like they want you to be there. And, and you feel warm. You feel greeted. There's often music playing, which I have never thought through in my entire life, like this thing I've heard about called ambiance. Um, But not only is the food thought out, like what's actually sitting at the table, although that's often thought out, it's the whole experience of being there. 
For example, like the drinks that you're going to have before, after, maybe some little appetizers, and lighting. Uh, I've never thought about lighting a day in my life. But these people think about, like, what is even the lighting is? What is the ambiance that you're creating around the room? And the point of emphasis on the table that the early church wants to give us and the Bible wants to give us is that God is like that. God wants to host us. He's thought through those details. He's prepared the absolute best meal that he could for us. In fact, he's given his full life for this meal that he sets out for us at the table so that we can come and we can eat with him. We can be with him and share that time with our benevolent host. You know, it's not a picture of a pissed-off judge who's waiting for us to take one little step in the wrong direction so that he can smite us. It's a picture of someone who deeply wants to spend some time with you and with me. Someone who wants to sit with us and laugh with us and befriend us and eat us, eat with us, not eat us, sorry. (laughs) That went off the rails really quickly. Uh, but eat with us together. You know, it's interesting. So the, the, there's, like I said, there's four Gospels, and we've been looking at Luke's Gospel. So Luke presents Jesus as the Jubilee King. And again, it's this idea. There's four stories about Jesus. They're all different speakers that want to be turned up for us to understand who Jesus is. So John, uh, the Gospel writer John, does something a little bit uh, different. When he wants to introduce Jesus to us, he says, you want to know who this person Jesus is? He puts him at a party, actually. He puts them at a wedding. This is the first thing that Jesus does in the Gospel of John. He's at a wedding party that's kind of plateaued and going down. Basically, they've run out of wine. And Jesus takes the role of the host in the situation. And what he does is he goes and finds some water, and he turns it into wine. Copious amounts of really, really good wine. And John is saying, If you're going to prepare to meet this Jesus, if you're going to prepare to meet this God, this is the first thing that I want you to know. This is how I want you to anchor your understanding of him, that this is the kind of God that we have. He's the kind of God who wants to bring the party. He's the kind of God who wants to be with us and enjoy time with us and laugh with us, be together, connecting with us. And he wants us to sit down with him, to fuel ourselves. That's what the table is all about, to fuel ourselves for the work that he invites us to do in partnership with him in healing the world. So table fellowship is 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 unbelievably crucial for Jesus' ministry. It's an important practice for the early church, and, and I think it gives us a really important vision of who God actually is, who he wants us to know him as. So that's the first thing I want us to see, is that this table fellowship is really important in the New Testament. The second thing, though, I want us to notice this morning is about the table fellowship of the early church is where these meals took place where these meals took place. Let's look back at our passage. It says this, or you can go to the next one. There we go. Every day they devoted themselves to meeting together in the temple, and they broke bread from house to house. They ate their food with joyful and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And so it seems like there's not just one meal, or the meal maybe doesn't stay in just one place. But they focused on the table in various areas. And David Fitch, who's an author that I'm leaning on a lot in this part of the series, observes that there seem to be at least three different places in this passage that I replicated in the rest of the New Testament where they focus on the table. And it's these three. In the temple, going from house to house, and then amongst all of the people. So in the temple, he says, is, is focused on a setting like this. We're a specific gathering with a specific purpose of bringing God's people together around the table, in the temple, 
The second place is in the house, so our house to house. These are in our homes. It's a smaller context in the homes, in the neighborhoods that we live in. And then the third place is amongst all of the people in the world, the places that we work, the places that we visit. So we're going to take a look at these uh, three tables in detail in the next uh, few weeks. But today I just want to point out what these tables are, what our role is at these tables, and then how they work together. So let's take a quick look at them. The first is table one, which is in the temple, or for us, on a Sunday morning, in a Sunday gathering. What, what is the table here for us? Well, it's the Lord's table that we have in front of me here. We're often called the communion table. There's lots of different names for it, and we'll talk a little bit more about that next week. But the big important thing here is that when we come to this table, God is present, and God is the host. He's the one who's prepared the meal for us, and so we come as guests. That's our role. We come to this table as guests, as humble recipients of grace. And the table and the host's language reminds us that we're wanted at this table. We're invited. We're called. God wants to meet with us at this table. And we come rehearsing the story of God with Jesus at the center and hopeful that the presence of God will minister to us in this place, that this might actually be a practice of resonance for us. David Fitch calls this the close table, which is different than the closed table. It's not closed, but it's close. So in a Jesus-centered way of thinking about things, what that means is we put Jesus at the center and we move towards him. It's for people who are moving towards God and towards one another, that we are becoming close with one another and with Jesus. And finally, this table is ground zero for the other tables, that everything flows from this table out to the other tables. It's where we start. And so it's the blueprint for what happens at the tables in our homes and in the tables in the world. What we do here in some way prepares us and trains us for what will happen at the other two tables. So this is table one, the table in the temple. Table number two, from house to house. This is the extension, like I said, of the first table. So it goes from here into the places that we call home. So it might be sitting down with your family or your household for a meal together. Or it could be community groups where we show up together with each other at tables around, uh, around Vancouver. Or it could be an after-Sunday lunch or a potluck or a youth leaders meeting or friends that you've invited to your homes. It's the second space that we have. And now all the same things are true about this second space as they are here. That God is already at work in those spaces, in the tables that we gather around in our homes. We don't need to bring him there. God is already at work. Instead, what we're invited to do is have the same postures that Mitch talked about last week, where we make ourselves present to God and present to one another. That we discern what God is up to and we submit to him in those spaces. We follow his lead And then we love one another. It's the same God and the same postures, but our roles change. At the tables in our homes, we become the host, which doesn't mean that we're the people who are in control. It doesn't mean we're responsible to make everything, you know, look like Kinfolk magazine or something like that. But rather, we're the ones who open up space for God's presence around those tables. We're responsible to be attentive to what God is doing and set the table, so to speak, for the presence of God to show up. And then we invite other people, other people in as the guests. 
Those from the close circle, other followers of Jesus who are here in our community or other followers of Jesus around the city and around the world, but also other people who are not. Friends, neighbors, family who don't yet follow Jesus. And so Fitch calls this the dotted circle or the porous circle, which means that it's an open space where people from the neighborhood can see God at work amongst his people and come together to experience and notice resonance and a group of people who have gathered themselves around the presence of God. And this second table, we'll talk more about this in in the coming weeks, but it is a key link between what happens here and the mission that we have out there in the world. Um, I'll just give a quick little, well, I'll say it this way. People from out in the world, from our jobs, who are not following Jesus, are not going to probably come into this space without going through that second space. And the same thing is also true. People are not going to be mobilized into the world and as part of this community unless they go through this second space in our homes. And again, we'll talk a lot more about that in the coming weeks. So that's table two. Table three is amongst all the people. And here I'm just going to read a long passage from uh, David Fitch's book because I just loved it so much. The table, however, does not stop here in the dotted circles of our homes. If the table begins around the close circle and extends into the neighborhood via the dotted circle fellowship, it extends further through the half circle into the world, where the hurting and broken people live their everyday lives. Into these half circles, Christians go, imitating Christ as he enters the homes of the marginalized, the publicans, and the sinners. These half circles, these places out in the world, are the places that we work. Maybe they're the restaurants and cafes and bars where we meet friends and frequent in our neighborhoods. They're the parties that that we go to. They're the dinners in our friends' houses that we're invited to. But they're also places of need within our city. The soup kitchens that we serve in. The old folks' homes that we may spend time in together. The downtown east side. Here, like Jesus, he continues, we go not as hosts... Inviting people to our table, but as guests. Submitting ourselves to the hospitality of others. We no longer serve as hosts, ordering the affairs at these tables. Instead, we give up control, risking humiliation and even scandal. In all of our weakness, we submit to Christ's presence among us and allow him to work. We live vulnerably alongside our brothers and sisters in the world, and we pay attention to what God is doing as we listen, tending to his work. That's such a key phrase, tending to what God is already doing. This open half circle is completely different posture from the other two circles for the Christian. And yet, and yet something marvelous happens in this space. As we share the food and the coffee, as we sit across from one another around the table, Christ's presence is here too. There is the space and the possibility of resonance. The question in the space of the half circle, is not whether Jesus will be present, but will he be recognized? Will Jesus be received? The tragedy is in many, if not most of these spaces, in these half circle spaces, the spaces in the world, that there is no one tending to Christ. There is no wherewithal to extend his presence through the practice of the half circle table. It takes someone who is there, who knows the stories around the table, who lives in Christ's presence, who knows his story, who can simply sit and be present to recognize his presence. This is why the church must extend table awareness into the places of lost brokenness. Here in the half circle, we go humbly and vulnerably, giving up all control, listening, 
waiting, tending to his presence, and letting Jesus work through the spaces between us and them across the table. This presence is what makes possible any and all proclamation of the gospel. Presence before proclamation. This is what faithful presence is. This is what faithful presence requires. I just love the vision that's cast here in this passage. That it's an extension, again, of the close table through our homes into the spaces that we work and the places that we go into the world. And God is once again present. He's no less present than he is here on a Sunday gathering, but we come in a different role. We come now as guests. And other people are the hosts. A different posture, tending to the presence of God, doing the same things that we've done here, doing the same things that we do in our home, in those third spaces, watching what God is doing, listening to other people, and then into that proclaiming God. The half circle, he calls it. So in Acts, these three tables, the the close circle, the dotted circle, and the half circle, they're all connected with one another. And what happens in our homes and our world, like you can see, they're extensions of what's going on at the table and what we do here. And this is really, really important um, because when we separate these things, when we separate these circles from one another, what we get is a very fractured and disconnected faith. Fitch says, if we focus most of our time and energy and attention on the close circle, What we do here in the Sunday gathering and communion, what happens is that the church gets stuck in what he calls maintenance mode, where the church becomes disconnected from the rest of our lives and from the mission in the world, that we get too focused on what's going on in here. And then some people react to maintenance mode. And so they just focus on mission, which basically is like saying, like, what do we even need the church for? What do I need church for? Let's just go to the highways and the byways and to go into the downtown east side and just serve people. That's the most important thing. That's what we should be doing. But Fitch says that this leads to burnout, actually. This just leads to exhaustion. What we need to do is reconnect them. Now, I'll just say in general, uh, as a generalization, that we as a church are much more in maintenance mode right now than in exhaustion mode, which doesn't mean that there's not people in here that are dealing with burnout and exhaustion. That's 100% true. But as a church, as a whole, we're more close to maintenance mode. And there's lots of good reasons why. We're, we're in a season of rebuilding. I, I talked about this a few uh, weeks ago, that we went through a long season in this church where we were just trying to keep the doors open or even just any doors of any building where we could meet open for like a period of time. And honestly, we had a... The, the, a spring cleaning day a couple uh, weeks ago. And it was one of those moments, I think, for us as staff where we just were like, oh, I guess we're like for real now. And this is like a space that we could actually be. It, it felt like me kind of like for the first time that that's what it felt like after just a couple years of a lot of transition. So we're rebuilding. And, that, and there's a lot of new people, which is wonderful. We're so grateful that you're here. But then a lot of energy just ends up getting expended on getting to know one another. What's your name? Let's get a coffee together. And again, all those things are really wonderful. Uh, and then we've got a lot of people in this community who are, who are, I would say, trying to renegotiate their faith, which means that maybe you had a faith expression as a younger person, when, whatever younger means for you. But at this stage of your life, you're trying to renegotiate that. How can I be a follower of Jesus now in this city, in this stage of my life? And so the last thing maybe on your mind is like, I'm not going to go tell other people about that. I'm going to be like, I don't really know what's going on, but you should 
come and be part of it too. Like, that's not how that works. You're not thinking of trying to convince anyone else and be on mission. So it's totally understandable. And David Fitch also says that churches in a context like ours can get stuck in maintenance mode or get pushed into it very easily because we're in a post-Christian or post-Christendom context, which just basically means that there used to be a bigger Christian presence in our city and in our country, and now there's a much smaller one, which isn't necessarily good or bad. It's just a reality. But we have this, this memory of what a big, successful church looks like. Maybe something we heard from Abbotsford or something from like our brothers and sisters to the south, Right? Which is not a dunk on them. It's just to say that you can have these really big churches and what it means to be successful. But here in the city, we have less and less Christians all the time. And so we can easily find ourselves competing, trying to make this gathering, trying to make this space awesome so that people will come in. We're competing to try to attract other Christians. And that's where all of our energy and attention gets focused on how we're better than other churches, how we're different than other churches. You know, how we're more cool or like, oh, but actually we're not cool. Um, We're the least cool, so you should come if that's you, right? And so it's very normal that, that we would get stuck in maintenance mode. And Fitch actually says that's most churches in the West, stuck in maintenance mode. But the invitation of this series and the shift that we're in right now is to move us away from maintenance and our addiction to try to be relevant. They're very, very similar, actually. They're quite related. And reorient our our vision for what we're doing here and what we're doing together as a group of people and the table specifically as a space of residence, a place of ministry, a place of renewal, a place of being restoried that we may now go onto the world as restoried people looking for the presence of God. That's, that's what we're trying to do when we come together here on a Sunday. And we want to restore the places that we live to, that our homes aren't just places to go where we feel safe, where we can retreat from the world, that are our little nest where we can just, you know, shut off the lights and watch as much Netflix as we want. Or, on the other hand, a place to make look like, you know, architectural digests, you know, home of the month or something like that. But there are places that we can actually tend to God's presence, where God wants to be present with us. That can be spaces of resonance where we experience, give, and receive the ministry of God. And we continue to extend that into the world. That Vancouver is not just a place of cool coffee shops and overpriced restaurants, but a place of God's presence. A place where he wants to be present if we would just tend to him. If we would learn at this table and the tables of our home to tend and to watch what he's doing, that we may extend his presence into those places. So that's where we're going in this series, and that's where we're going uh, this morning. So I want to just close today with an invitation to us from this ancient church in Acts 2, and it's to come. We're going to end this teaching time now, and we're going to be an invitation for you to sing. To sing, to to come and sing together. And you know, one of the things, maybe some of you can't sing in response today. And I encourage the rest of you to sing for those people. That's why we come together as a community. And you can take Mitch's advice from last week, sing loud if you want to. Uh, some people were downstairs last week and they were, didn't know what was happening in the sermon and Mitch had said to sing really loud and they said, I don't know what's going on upstairs, but it's super loud up there. Um, it's like Mitch took the whip out and he told us to sing. So we sang. But to sing for one another, to respond in singing, to give. Like I said, the the early church is characterized by this economic difference from the world. That what we have is not our own. That we would give. And some of us may be here this morning needing to receive financially. That you would be able open to that. To giving and receiving the ministry of God. 
to pray and to be prayed for. We'll have people up here who are willing to pray for you. And so come and be prayed or turn to a neighbor this morning and pray. But very specifically, I want to invite you to this table this morning. It's the close table, like I said. It's not close to anybody in this room, but it's close. It's for people who are putting Jesus in the center of their lives and are are choosing to move towards him. Not perfectly, of course. None of us are doing that. But as a general theme, and and for those of us who are here, maybe you, you know that you've turned away from the table. And so take this as the invitation of God to turn back. That's the Bible's word of repentance, is that you're just walking in a different way. And we invite you to come and walk, like it says in the First Nations version of the Bible, come walk the good road with Jesus, with Creator sets free. Say yes to him. Take a minute to confess and to turn towards the table. And I encourage you, if that's something that's going on in your life, that you're turned away from the table of God, you're turned away from this invitation to come and to feast and to be with him, I invite you also, before you leave, maybe this morning or at least this week, just to grab a friend and to talk to them about that place where you're hearing the siren song of someone else or something else calling you away from the table of God, that they may join you, that you don't walk alone, but that you can hear Jesus call together. So we invite you to the Lord's table. We invite you to each one of those species of response to come as a guest, to come to this table where the Lord is our host. Let's, Let's pray in closing. Father, I was reminded this week of the words from Isaiah, a very famous passage from Isaiah 55, where you just say, come, come and buy, come and, come and eat, come and drink. That that invitation is open to each one of us, that you long to provide for each one of us at this table. And so I pray that this morning that we would hear your invitation to come, the invitation to be restoried, from all the other stories that take up bandwidth in our minds and in our hearts throughout the week, that we would hear an invitation to come and find ourselves in your story where you are the host, where you long to be with us, where you want to minister to us. And so we come hoping to encounter your presence this morning in all that we do in response, but also at the table. And I pray for each one of us that we would also respond with the words of revelation that's that's, that's an invitation for you to come as well. So we say in this time and in this place, come Holy Spirit. Come Lord Jesus, we welcome you and we ask you to minister to us. We pray these things together in Jesus' powerful name. Amen.